This is Ed Cohen, editor and publisher of Global HR News and GlobalBusinessNews.net, your broadcast host on Global Radio Talk Show. Our guest today is Mike Piker, Vice President, Total Rewards and Labor Relations with Philip Morris International, speaking to us today from Lausanne, Switzerland. And I'm here in San Diego, California. I am really honored to have Michael Piker involved with us as conversationalist. He has some very interesting stuff to share with us about new performance management systems and total reward strategy to accelerate their smoke-free vision at PMI. Let's say hello and welcome Mike Piker. Good morning to you. Privileged to be here. Likewise here. So I see also from your your bio that you were co-author of a special report which was produced in collaboration with World Economic Forum and presented. And the report that I see was Talent Mobility Good Practices Collaboration at the Core of Driving Economic Growth. Now, that is a topic today and a favorite approach to me. Tell us a little bit, please, about that report and who was your co-author? That was one of the highlights of my career. I worked when I was at Mercer with Haig Nelbanchin, whom you might know as well as Rick Guzzo, who are the experts in workforce sciences at Mercer, who are brilliant guys. And then we worked in collaboration with the WEF. I presented it in Davos and in Cambodia. It was about a year-long study. It was quite cool, but it was really looking at the degree to which talent mobility exists to the extent to which it could drive economic growth, meaning getting the right people in the right role at the right time and the right location, both in a commercial context as well as with NGOs and governments. And as the three work together to, if you will, move talent virtuously across the world, the economic growth engine by doing that adeptly will then by association grow GDP from a nation state standpoint. So it had a direct correlation. So you're saying in brief that developing globally mobile talent is directly related to economic development. Yes. So it's directly correlated. We found from the couple hundred pages we presented at Davos. In addition is the skill and capability that you transfuse by moving from one place to another, then level sets capability across the globe, which then has a parenthetical link to economic growth. So it's simply put, if you can bring the capability more swiftly by obviously buying versus building and moving it, then you can accelerate growth faster. And then you can then, as a result, skill up your labor force with that new capability more quickly. So that is related to today's slogan of reskill, upskill, and reinvent. Well said. (laughs) So you're a global HR leader and view yourself as a transformation agent. Do you want to do 30 seconds on what that means to you? Yeah, I mean, I've been a global gypsy my whole life. I like working in my current one, for example, where you can effectuate change. In consulting, you can do it at a surface level, but when you go inside a company and transform, you can really make a deep impression. So that's what I really enjoy. You know, it's interesting. I I was speaking with some other very senior consultants recently, and they said the exact same thing. 
that they weave in and out between on the outside being a consultant, you know, hovering, dropping in, <laughs> parachuting yeah. in. And, and then the the real thrill is being inside and making things happen. And I was talking with a couple of guys at a meeting in Paris I produced in early December. They're from Cap Gemini. And it's almost the exact same story. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So if I may ask you, before we dig deeper into the smoke-free approach, which is a really a wonderful and it's aspirational goal, in my view. What does global HR mean to you? It's a, it's a broad question, but an important question. We actually personified even more broadly at Philip Morris, and we call it people and culture. So my head, and I've been in the profession, I guess, 30 years, so I obviously have some views. So to your, directly to answer your question, I think my humble view, I think it's more concentric if you just simply say it is the people function, that we are the custodian of the culture of the company. So those two, I think, it's, you know, symbi- symbiotically linked to each other and probably more aptly describe, in fact, what we really do. Um, it's less abstract than just simply saying HR, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Thank you for that insight. So let's dig deep. Let's go deep here and tell us about this transformational process going on at PMI. Yeah, simply put, um, it's uh, one of the most remarkable, interesting companies on the face of the earth. Um, 80 billion, 81,000 employees, Fortune 50. Obviously, the world leader with Marlboro and other brands people are associated with. Admittedly, it's a sector that people obviously have strong views about, as did I. And when they approached me about 10 months ago, embarking on this transformation to smoke-free, initially I was a bit cautious, but the more I looked under the hood and saw truly, and you've seen it in the Wall Street Journal last week and around the world, including at Davos, we are declaring emphatically, and we do mean it, that we do want to go down that path of what we call reduced risk products, which means basically... Simple terms, it's less carcinogenic. We want to move away from conventional cigarettes to heated products, products that don't burn but heat, which means if you heat around what we call 300 degrees, it's less carcinogenic from a physio standpoint. So the core vision is to produce platforms and products to enjoin that society to convert existing users to those platforms. And how does this relate to today's thing called vaping? So there's typically four or five different platforms. Altria, which is one of our former sister companies we used to be together, is two, is one company. Vaping is a product and a platform where you've got, a, if you will, a, a liquid inside a container. And then there's a smoke that's imbued, but not necessarily a smoke. It's basically a, a smell. And through that chemical oxidation process, the vaping occurs, again, at a lower temperature. It's a different platform. There's e-cigarettes. There's what's called ICOS 3.0, which is the product we use, which is a technology product. So there's quite a few. And there's a, another product called Juul in the market you might have heard about. So you're basically a people person, and this mm-hmm. sounds scientific, right? Yeah, we, it's funny. I mean, the, the, think about it. We got six of the premier brands, Marlboro being, of course, the most famous. It's been around for a long time. To do what we want to do, you've got to get 
and we hired a, you know, have about a thousand scientists in Neuchâtel, in Switzerland, and around the world who produce clinically and just like a pharma company trial products to bring to consumers that are more healthy. And so it has a very strong science foundation and a trialing with the FDA that has to adjudicate on the efficacy of the products. And then you have to build the technology devices to prefer that to the market. And then you've got to sell it in a retail environment, which we never did before. So the whole build, design, operate model to do that is very different from what we used to do. Interesting. So what kind of people are, well, in your role as VP Total Rewards and Labor Relations, what kind of people are you looking to recruit as an organization? Great question. Very different capability now. So very much those individuals that possess strong transformation capability and acumen, be it consultants from Bain, McKinsey, and so forth. We need and are hiring lots of folks from technology and digital companies to design and deploy these platforms digitally. Retail folks from Burberry to Marks and Spencer, who've worked with consumer to consumer selling, which we normally didn't do. And most importantly, scientists who can produce, adjudicate, and deploy efficable products in this space. So it's a host of different capability suddenly we need to hire. Are you relocating these people all into Switzerland yeah. or just No. Yeah. Bespoke. We do have though one of the largest mobility programs on the face of the earth. But we're location agnostic or capability specific we want and we're hiring lots and lots of new capability now. So technology and communications technology is key keeping in touch with people. Yeah. Technology devices, for example, the ICOS 3.0 device, you need to know about batteries and hardware and stuff we never used to do before. So this is really interesting. I wish I was younger. I would uh, definitely apply for a job (laughs) 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 because I'd love to be in Switzerland. But anyway, (laughs) it's a nice place. uh, Yeah, I bet. Yeah, you know, one time Joanne and I did a house exchange thing between San Diego and this uh, couple who lived at the time in, in Evian, hmm. just down the just street. Just across from, the lake. Yeah, yeah just across exactly the lake. across the street there. I mean, across the lake. And we we took that steamer, mm-hmm. <laughs> that ferry Still across. there. Still yeah, there. Yeah. That was wonderful. And uh, at that time, we also went up to Chamonix. This was during the summer, but there was lots of snow up there. Yes, it never goes away. <laughs> Welcome to Switzerland. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So... The role of global HR, the role of the people leader in big business today, this idea, you know, this hackneyed phrase, seat at the table, you know, I don't know what it means anymore. So I'd certainly love you to address that. But first, I want to ask you about the new, quote unquote, new role of the HR business partner. How do you see that happening? Well, the Ulrich model has been around, as we know, a long time. It's evolved a lot since then. It's difficult to simply codify BP, right? Then you have COEs and then you have OPS, right? Which has been the model in vogue for 15 to 20 years. A business partner that does not enjoin in their capability operational acumen, coupled with domain expertise, particularly in ODOE and reward and let's say talent management. So what's happening is the morphing and storing of business partners that must requisitely possess 
domain expertise as an expert, operational excellence at their core, whilst also speaking the language of the business. And that's where I at least foresee and observe a good business partner needs to pivot to. And I'm seeing more and more of that in the companies I've worked in. So the role of the mobility operations manager, isn't that a business, HR business partner? No. Well, it, it services, it prefers service to a business partner, but as a core expertise area, for example, I typically call it now talent mobility, not just mobility. That's its own area of expertise, either under talent management or typically under reward. Right. And so, of course, that's my specialty and where most of our audience is, but we're expanding to the width mm -hmm. of people and culture. And that's why this is so exciting to me. Mm. So, and from your perch uh, at the senior level here, looking back on your corporate HR experience with Naspers, Lenovo, and others, how do you see mobility? growing or changing. There's so much talk now about the intrusion, if you will, of technology or the usefulness of it. it. depends on who you're talking to. And a lot has to do with the company culture, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, we've got, as I alluded to, one of the largest programs in the face of the earth. I've been involved in and in around the topic for 30 years and started at ORC, which founded what's called the balance sheet approach. When my father taught me that. So to your point, for example, yesterday I was in London with somebody whom you might know, Steve Brink, who's a great friend, the CEO mm -hmm. of Air Inc. Yeah. And my team and I were having a great dialogue with Steve, who leads a fantastic company. And exactly that question is, what is the it-it? And the answer is, and I've been on the board of ERC, you recall. So we created the curricula of what's called GMST, which is talent mobility, but if you really, really go deep, as you know, the why of what we, why business-wise we have mobility is typically unanswered. Most of the fora and forums I typically go to or partake in talk about operational deployment, vendors, all the minutiae of mobility, which is incredibly important, but we never go back to why we have mobility. And it, it seems unanswered for so long. And then I met my friend, Peter Newhouse, who's my peer at Unilever, and he and I have known each other a long time. Same question. And Peter, you know, runs a massive program at Unilever. I do at PMI. Same question. And the, the answer is you've got to, again, add on-demand talent deployment that befits the business need. So that the why bit continues, in my view, to be unanswered, but it has to be answered and has to be used more frequently. But the organizations that have, in my humble view, that really get into talent mobility, it's few and far between. It's mostly about send X to Y. We know the machine to do that. I'm incredibly familiar with that. But the why we have mobility, what does it serve? What business purpose does it underpin is the strategic, the crucial question that has to be answered. So how do you see the influx of the new generation? I, hit, I don't want to call them millennials. I'm sick of that word. So I'm calling yeah. it a new generation, new gen. <laughs> and that's so, they're so tech-oriented and they're, mm -hmm. they're, they're striving for an international assignment. And yeah. so these are developmental projects then, right? Rightly so. I mean, you look at uh, my friend Bryn Kennedy, who runs Topia and the Move Guides who came together. And that's self-service with Generation X who can 
put on their backpack and then go take a journey to another exotic location. And that's a fantastic service. But if presumably if a company does talent mobility, well, one of the categories as it should be, will catch those early hypos and the world has moved to, of course, self-directed talent management. But if you can then brand yourself that you want to go and you're in the right company, who's got a very good early lens about hypo talent that goes abroad like ours, then you're very likely to go. So we have a massive program and we have a good slug of people that are put their hand up and say, you know what, I have this particular skill and we, we pop them out. We're in 150 countries and they go. To what extent does your early life experience as an Eagle Scout relate to inspiring and managing people who go on international assignments? Here's the thing, my, just full transparency, my dad, my brother, and I are all eagles. Um, we, all lived, we all lived around the world. My dad was my mentor, Fred Piker, in mobility. So when I got my eagle, that I was living in England, in Cobham, going to ACS, which is a yeah. very well-known expat school. Sure. And I went and built and did my project at Walton Furs Scout Camp, which is just down the road. And I guess to your interesting question, the, the fact that I left my, I, it's a stupid little story, but you know, I built a, a Northwest Indian totem pole of all things. So it was my project. So my legacy <laughs> to England in some very humble, stupid way was my project because the camp director Walton Furs loved Indian lore. And so I, as an American kid getting my eagle could leave a totem pole at the British Boy Scout camp. And he was just delighted with that. And that I think was part of my, if you will, gypsy journey, if you could put it that way, of living abroad. That was sort of my first legacy of living abroad, if you could say it that way. This is a wonderful conversation. I'm enjoying it. So um, our a bit about our audience, global, of course, and this will be broadcast and available from our website with nothing to buy, nothing to sign, on-demand, download 24-7. Some of our shows, broadcasts, get 1,000 a day. And I believe that because we're growing in the global HR space with more news and information and topics, that this, over time, will generate eight to 10,000, at least, listeners. You know, because people can listen while driving or walking mm -hmm. or biking or sitting on a train. But I want to uh, get back to your living and working in, you say, nine countries here. China, Singapore, Japan, Brazil, Switzerland, Germany, UK, Netherlands, US, and that you taught English in Japan. Yeah. That's fascinating. And so t tell us a little bit about what that was about, but also what it taught you as a person. So it's a very well-known program called the Japan Exchange and Teaching Program, JET. A lot of the alumnus know it. I fell in love with Japan very early. I studied Japanese for seven years. You go through an interview at the embassy in Washington, which is a lot of fun. They role play. Can you stand in front of a thousand students and talk in English or Japanese and teach a class? And they really test you. And if you make the cut, which I guess I did, and then you go. And I was one of the first early years of the program. And today it's still going very well. But the purpose was to, in Japan, right or wrong, their English is not necessarily great. <laughs> so the intent of the program was to uh, permit and uh, enjoying 
an assistant English teacher with their peer uh, together in a class. And you serve as an ambassadorial role. I mean, I was up in Iwate, which is where the earthquake, near where the earthquake was, unfortunately. I lived with a homestay family who was a dentist. And for a year, I applied the Higashi Iwai County in northern Iwate, way, way up in northern Japan. And on one day, I would have to give a speech in Japanese to a thousand students about living in America. Uh, in the afternoon, I might have to teach a class about pronunciation and vowels. So basically, I guess it taught me first, A, how much I really still today adore Japan, its culture, everything. Two, public speaking, to speak extemporaneously in another language. It taught me a lot about that. It taught me to be humble because you're the only gaijin or foreigner within 300 miles. So when you walk down the street, you're like Michael Jackson every day. I mean, <laughs> literally, they're just blue-eyed, white-skinned American. They just, you're an alien. <laughs> so, yeah. But it taught me a sense of place and purpose, being self-reliant, being humble, and also in some interesting, perverse way, just to serve as a very minuscule ambassador between America and Japan. Jumping back to your report in the past that was delivered at the World Economic Forum, Talent, Mobility, Good Practices, Collaboration at the Core of Driving Economic Growth. I would like to republish that in mm. our website. We have a section of globalbusinessnews.net, mm. which is called Newsroom. And I'm collecting surveys and articles and white papers, as well as other stuff from people who want to do it. There's no fee involved and it's mm -hmm. free access, free download. That's great. We want the content. That's why we're doing this show. And that's why I want key reports and papers. So coming back now to PMI, and that it's, so you want to be called PMI or Philip Morris International? We just use that. It's very simple. We call it PMI. So this is a wonderful thing. Now, this is uh, aspirational leadership. And in my, these are my words, but so many companies now are recognizing the ROI, if you will, the ROI of doing good things and making products healthy or better, whether it's cars and now cigarettes. Now, when I was in high school, Marlboro was number one. I used to save mm -hmm. the boxes in my closet. <laughs> right. It's an iconic brand. It yeah. came out of Richmond, Virginia. Exactly. So how are you building iconic ideas now? I mean, you know, the idea is to accelerate smoke-free is a great thing, but how do you build an, an icon kind of a thing with that? Uh, by more engagement with your people and then how that relates to the ultimate customer and community? I guess. Yeah, I mean, the, admittedly, it's an industry, like I modestly said before, people rightly have strong views. Where we're attempting to do is to at least speak and affirm the Wall Street Journal last week with the personas of our executives, multiple forums, including the NGOs and the ILO, and to talk why we want to do this. And so the iconography, to your point, we have boutiques, even on the Ginza in Tokyo or in Athens, where we show you the ICOS device. So the new Marlboro, if you will, of PMI is ICOS. It's, it's like a stick. Again, heats, not burns. You put in a heat on the end. And one of them is a Marlboro heat, in fact. But if you think about it, it's a technologically enabled product for an existing cigarette user that 
looking for a new cool thing. It's healthier for you. It's a lifestyle choice. So when they go in and look at it, in some, I, you know, it's not the new Marlboro, but it, it has a new iconic temperature to it that people can relate to if you're an existing user of a conventional cigarette. And we've been, we've, you know, our aspirational goal is to hit, uh, obviously, the conversion rate at a more rapid rate and eventually eradicate, frankly, conventional cigarettes from the face of the earth. That's our absolute emphatic goal is to eradicate it from the, from the globe. And that's why I joined up, because that vision spoke to my heart. Uh, something as lofty, a colossally successful machine of PMI to embark on that journey is, is laudable. And I, I had to think about the industry and the sector personally and professionally very carefully. But that vision spoke to my heart that it's the right thing to do for the earth. And believe me, we are doing it. Really a wonderful thing that you're doing, in my view. So as we come to a close, I want to thank you. But if we could just zero in for the sake of our listening audience who are involved in talent mobility management and those who service the ultimate consumer, who is the transferee and family. One of our talk show themes when we produce live trainings is accelerating performance of the assignee through coaching and more engagement, more communications, but equally accelerating performance of the team, the mobility team with the stakeholders and all that. I'm sure you have some thoughts about this, and this is unrehearsed question, but if you could talk to the corporate in-house managers of mobility who are listening to this today or in the future, how do you accelerate performance of the mobility team? What, what is one kernel of, of knowledge that you could share today? Yeah, I mean, I speak a lot around the world. It's simply ground what you say in commercial, commercially acceptable words. So rather than use the jargon of post-net and all the jargon been around for years, how does the purpose of moving somebody from country A to country B serve a business purpose. So it sounds super simple, but 30 years have been around it. The conversation is too jargony in HR speak. So if you can have that mobility professional, which they can and they do, you know, our profession is very tightly woven to have and hold a commercially based conversation on why the programming exists and what's why are they going? And if it's grounded in particular commercial skills, technology, transfer, but it's, it's not the operational stuff. It's what's it serving the greater purpose of the vision to underpin that company's vision to do what it does. Then it's a completely different contextual conversation with the business. So my call out and I urge every time I speak is don't use jargon, speak succinctly get call ahead before you get called to move somebody to be proactive and ground everything you do in what we call evidence-based analytics. So the degree to which you can predict before you even ask the need for the capability or skill gap, you've already got the data to prove to the business what hole needs to be filled even before they ask you. There's maybe about five or 10 companies in the world that are at that level, but that's good talent mobility in my view. 
Evidence-based analytics, meaning that the mobility manager is already talking with the talent strategy people, yeah. and they know who they're trying to recruit and where they're going to be targeted. Yeah, the, the, the best of the best are what we call build, you either build talent or you buy talent, right? Mm-hmm. So mobility, you're typically building it and moving talent. So if you answer that question, and if your workforce planning suggests that you need to build X number of skill capabilities, let's say in Dubai, for us, let's say oil and gas, maybe Halliburton or Schlumberjag, you've already defined the capability, the skill gap, the project, the start and the end. And even before the business calls you, you've already at the table saying, okay, I think we've got 50 of this skill and capability who can move now to Dubai at this total cost basis to enjoin in this project delivering up, up start. That's that's a commercial conversation mobility. That's not a deployment conversation, if you follow me. And the more we do that virtuously with real hard facts to predict that you spend X with this capability, uh, you can more quickly set it up than buying the talent locally. That's, like I said, a very, very different conversation. But not so many companies talk talent mobility at that level. So in 60 seconds, the new thing is gig assignments. In other words, uh, yeah. contract employment. So in addition to the two Bs of building talent, buying talent, borrowing, mm-hmm. <laughs> borrowing talent or something, what say you about gig assignments? Gigs are absolutely it. So self-directed, self-motivated talent of every major corporations and viewing in you own your own destiny. So gig assignment doesn't necessarily need to be Gen X. But a gig is if you, on a dime, want to drop and go somewhere, the company permits you to do that if you have the right business case. And if they don't, then you go on your own. And you do it unbeknownst to your employer, and you, you want to do it because you want to discover, learn, explore in life. I've done it 30 years in my life. It's the best thing I've ever done in my life. We've been talking with Michael Piker. Vice President, Total Rewards and Labor Relations with PMI, Philip Morris International, coming to us today from Lausanne, Switzerland. Michael, thank you for being our guest on Global Radio Talk Show. Loved it. You're most welcome. This is Ed Cohen signing off from San Diego and Michael in Lausanne, Switzerland. Oh,